Good morning. As you now know, I'm Lori Campbell. If you didn't know before, you've heard it twice now. I'll be reading Nehemiah 4, verses 15 through 23 from the 2011 NIV. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night, so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when we went for water. This is the word of the Lord. So this week I read an excerpt from a biography that was written by Charles Edison. That's the son of Thomas Edison. He recalled an incident in his father's life that was, well, like many other incidents in his father's life, exceptional. He said, on one cold December evening in 1914, when his father had been working just feverishly on inventing a storage battery... And for 10 years, the experiment hadn't gone well and had failed. On that night, a fire broke out in his lab. He said the fire was so intense that eight fire departments came to the scene to try to exhaust the flame, and it took all night to do so. While they were fighting the flames, he was looking for his father, Thomas Edison, He said, after all, dad was 67 years old, and everything he had in terms of experiments was burning up in the flames, and he thought, is he going to be okay? You don't usually start over at 67. And then he said, through the night, I saw my father running towards me, and he said, he said to me, Charles, go get your mother. And tell her to bring her friends. You're never going to see a fire like this again. (laughs) And apparently the mother and the friends came. After it was all over, at 5.30 in the morning, he gathered his workers, associates together. And he said, we're rebuilding. One man was told to lease all the machine shops in the area. Another man was told to find a company that had a wrecking crane. And then he said, sort of 
almost like he'd forgotten it. After he gave these instructions, he looked around and says, oh, does anybody know where we can find some money? <laughs> he, he was so focused on the task and so undeterred by failure that he refused to stop. His son said that after all that was over and he'd given a speech to his workers, he took his coat, he rolled it up into a pillow and he laid down on a table and went fast asleep. That was Thomas Edison. When I read the story, I thought of Nehemiah. An insurmountable task. Enemies everywhere. And Dan talked a bit about that two weeks ago. I want to go back to chapter 4, which is where Dan was in the first 14 verses, and remember that section and complete it with some points of application. First of all, you may remember that in chapter 4, whenever Nehemiah was doing his work, he encountered significant opposition. Let's call that an assault. So what was the first assault? The first assault was ridicule. And it came from Sanballat and the other people who were carping against him. Ridicule has a way of discouraging you and bringing you down. So what was Nehemiah's response to the ridicule? His response was twofold. Honest prayer. He acknowledged the problem. He even acknowledged the fact that they were tired and worn out and that ridicule could make it worse, in effect. The second thing he did in response, you could find more, to the ridicule, is he increased his resolve. In other words, it was almost as though he said to Sanballat and anybody else, bring on the ridicule because it's fuel for my fire. It's energy for my vision. I'm going to increase my resolve after the ridicule. The second assault was a little different, and the second result was... Well, really a threat of violence. So again, we hear names like Sanballat. That one's the big one. Everybody remembers Sanballat as the one who was threatening an assault. But also there was a guy called Tobiah. There were a group of people referred to as the Arabs. There was another group of people referred to as the Ammonites. And then there was Ashdod. So imagine this. Nehemiah is basically surrounded by critics who are ridiculing him. Even if a fox climbs up on that wall, it'll fall down, they said. And then they're surrounded by people who are about to or threatening to attack them. And that's what we come to today. So how did he respond to the assault that was pending related to violence? He posted guards at the weakest point of the wall. The place where they were most vulnerable, he posted guards. And then he reminded them of this. It comes to us in verse 14. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. The reason I don't want you to be afraid is not because there's no reason to be afraid. He was a realist. There is a reason to be afraid. 
The reason I don't want you to be afraid is that the Lord is awesome and mighty. So armed with that knowledge, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives. Armed with the understanding that God is in control, I want you to defend the work of God. Half the men built while the other half stood guard, as you heard from our reading. Armed and ready, they all had some form of weapon on their side or in their hands. None of them changed their clothes. I, you know, that probably got kind of stinky. That was what I thought of when I read it. None of them changed their clothes. They just laid down and they never took their weapons off. They were always ready and well prepared. So that's the short story, the summary of what was a couple of weeks ago and the update concerning strapping swords to your side. So let's, let's remember a few things that easily emerge out of such a story. I love what Adam said before the song that he introduced to us. That sometimes we look at Old Testament, old stories and say, really, does that affect us? We're not building walls. It does. There's something there. So let's remember a few things from this story. The first is this. If you're going to do something good, personally or as an organization or as the church, if you're going to do something good, opposition is inevitable. It's not possible. It's inevitable. It's not like it might happen. It's going to happen. If you're doing good, opposition is coming. That's important to remember, isn't it? I'll tell you why it's important to remember, at least for me, is because when I'm in the exercise of goodness, I think I ought to have blessings. And then I remember reality. When I'm doing what is good, you and I will receive opposition. Teddy Roosevelt is an interesting historical character in the history of our nation. I'm sure he wasn't on the right side of every issue, for sure. But he did understand that criticism is inevitable. And he also understood how we have to have a mentality to overcome it. You may remember this quote if you've read about Teddy Roosevelt. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of a deed may have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust, sweat, and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcomings. So, wherever you are in your life, wherever we are in the life of our church, 
Are you or we discouraged? If we're discouraged, we probably need to take heart because maybe it means we're doing the right thing. Are you or I or all of us facing opposition? The lesson from Nehemiah is it's going to come. Don't let it get you off track. Stay on the job. And one more reminder concerning opposition, whether ridicule or violence, assaults of any kind against the church, against individuals who are following God, those assaults are relentless. They never stop. So always be prepared. Strap on your sword, pick up your shield, take your spear in hand, do God's work of building whatever wall it is you're given responsibility to build. So the first thing is that if you're doing good, opposition's coming. The second thing is opposition might actually be a blessing. It might actually be a blessing. Actually, opposition may encourage us not to be lazy because we're prodded by something we realize is a threat and otherwise we might get lackadaisical. Opposition could be a method from keeping our pride in check. If we didn't have opposition and everything was just skating along perfectly, we might get boastful and prideful. But opposition has a way of humbling you and keeping your your ego in check. You know, the New Testament authors and Old Testament... As we were reminded last week by Scott in his sermon, they not only say that opposition might be a blessing in disguise, they say something even more direct than that. Here are just a few words from the book of James, chapter 1, verse 10. Consider it pure joy. Pure joy. Not even a blessing in disguise, but pure joy. My brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance, let perseverance do its work. The opposition is a blessing from God. The trials are a blessing from God. The struggle is a blessing from God. Every time I get lazy, I stop exercising. I'm in that mode right now, got to be honest. Just came back from vacation. All kinds of excuses not to exercise. And when I get back to exercising, you know what happens. My muscles hurt. I get irritated because it hurts. And I want to think to myself, this shouldn't hurt. This is good for me. That's why it hurts, because it's good for me. Have you ever gone through a surgery like shoulder, knee, hip? And then you go to that physical therapist, and they manipulate your limb in ways that make you want to hit them, right? 
And then they tell you to do it again and to do it five times a day and they just go on and on and you think, this is the craziest thing. I want to be better. That's how you get better. Exercise is painful. Physical therapy is painful. And it's a blessing. Transfer it to our spiritual realm. The trials and the temptations of life are actually a blessing. That's why Paul puts it in a similar way. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint us. So thank God for the suffering. Third thing to remember um, is this. And people can go over the top with this. I get it. And I always worry that people will. But this is a reality, my friends. There's an adversary of your soul. There is a person who wants to damn you. And it's not the opposition. Could be. It's the invisible force of Satan. He wants to tear you down. He wants to tear down Christ's church. And he's active all the time in that work. Peter, um, that disciple of Jesus who understood what temptation was really all about, speaks to this in one of his epistles. He said, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's the reality. What's the response? Peter says, resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. You're not alone. Stand firm. There's another passage that you're very familiar with, but I'm actually going to read it. It's a reminder that our struggle is not necessarily against flesh and blood. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, against spiritual forces in evil places in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit 
on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And pray for me also. I need it, says Paul. He's that pastor who's not just talking to people. He's that pastor who's saying, here's reality. We're all in it together. Now, when you think about Nehemiah, you think of outside opposition. And it was there. But you also, if you look carefully enough, realize there's inside opposition. You might just call it discouragement. In the book of Nehemiah, it's easy to see this as a community activity, isn't it? They're all working together to rebuild a wall, and the assault is from the outside. In this passage that I just read, we routinely apply this directly to ourselves. We say, oh, Paul's words are for me to stand firm. Paul's words are for me to take on the armor of God. All of that is true. But sometimes it's easy for us to forget that the epistles of Paul and other epistles were not written directly to us. They are written vicariously to us. They were written to a community. So when that community was going through difficulty, this was Paul's advice. But there's one more thing I want to say about chapter 6 of Ephesians. You, you know what precedes it? Here's what precedes it. It's chapter 4, verse 3. He says to the community, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The devil is going to attack. So keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You can't do this alone. This is not about you and God, although it is. This is about the church of Jesus Christ. Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Can I put it another way? You can critique my interpretation if you like. I know that happens every Sunday afternoon at mealtime. <laughs> but I think Paul may be saying to that church and to this church, look, my friends, there's enough things that could divide you. Focus on what unites you. Focus on what unites you. When we focus on what unites us, not only does it, like a laser beam, point us in a direction so we don't squabble as much, it focuses us on the purposes of God in Christ in his living church. Because it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about us, the living church of Christ. So the next time you're inclined to think about something that divides, 
and there's plenty of things that do, recoil your mind and ask what unites and focus on that. So here, here are four takeaways with four words from all these verses that we've looked at. The first word is solidarity. Solidarity. We need to be united in Jesus Christ. The second word is vigilance. Just like Peter and Paul said, the church will be attacked by Satan. And sometimes it will be subtly from within and not from without. So be vigilant. Third is sacrifice. There is no way for a community to survive and to thrive unless that community is willing to sacrifice for the others and to sacrifice for a higher calling than the calling to self. And the fifth word, invincibility. Let me tell you what I don't mean by that word. I don't mean that Christ Community Church at Bloomington, 503 South High Street, is invincible. There may come a day where all of this will be gone. There may come a day, I don't know, when it will be turned into something else. I'm not talking about right here, right now, and that this will live forever. I'm talking about something bigger when I use the word invincibility. When I say invincible, I mean the church of Jesus Christ is invisible. Invincible. Invisible too. It is eternal. It will last beyond time and space. It is the host, the crowd of witnesses that together will live in eternal life. The church of Jesus Christ is invincible. And so, as a local church, the way for us to thrive is to focus on the invincibility of the eternal, invisible church. And how do we do that? By uniting around the truth of God's word and moving in the direction that we're called to move as the people of God. It takes a lot of time and effort to refocus, but it's worth it. Because if we refocus properly, the church, which is invincible, will live on through us. I can't tell you after these many years how incredibly encouraged I am about the church of Jesus Christ. About Christ's community church. I haven't been here as long as John. He's really old, but... I'm going on 25 years and I honestly can't remember a time I've been more encouraged. I can't. Can't remember a time when I've been more encouraged because I know we're a part of the universal, eternal, 
invincible church of Jesus Christ. So let's keep our focus and make our way. Will you pray with us? Lord, we thank you that um, we're not alone. We're, We're not alone because we're together. And that's true and it's important, but we're also not alone because you're the head of the church. We're not alone because you're our leader. We're not alone because the truth concerning God in Jesus Christ is the foundation of our existence. And that truth concerning God in Jesus Christ has transformed the world, will transform the world, and in reality will be absolutely victorious. We can't see all the details in front of us. But here's what we know, God. We know the end of the story. So make us faithful until you wrap it all up, until the invisible, invincible church of Jesus Christ, through the power of the resurrection, allows sin and death to be crushed by the cross. Until then, until it's complete, make us faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.